Well, good morning, and welcome again to In Town Church. My name is Steve. I'm uh, happy to be here with you this morning. Uh, I was told last week my sermon was a little bit short, so I have got a doozy. I don't know why it was so short, and this one might be a little bit longer, but I didn't do it intentionally. We're going to continue our uh, study of Luke's gospel this morning and pick up where we left off last week. So let me read our passage and pray for us, and we'll get started. This is the gospel reading from Luke 22. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man? With a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. Jesus answered, No more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour, when darkness reigns. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, as we sang together, Your love is limitless. It becomes indescribable and and we will run out of breath trying to tell of it. And even if all of us were professional writers and we could write across the entire sky, we would run out of room to tell of your love. And all that we know to do is to point to Jesus dying for us. And rather than call each of us to write of your love, you have written it on our bodies. You have etched it into our suffering. Would we be so overcome with the love of Jesus this morning that we would embrace your will? that we would embrace whatever suffering comes as a result of your will, knowing that it is through that that you will continue to tell the world of your great, great love. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Jackie Robinson was known for being a man outraged by injustice. We all know him as a, as a really great baseball player, but he had absolutely no problem standing up for himself, and he would valiantly fight back when he felt like he was being uh, treated unjustly because of his skin color. In fact, uh, once in the military, he was gutsy enough to actually refuse an order to move to the back of the bus because he was black, and he ended up getting court-martialed because of it. But in 1945, Jackie sat down with Branch Rickey, the president of the Dodgers ball club, and Rickey said to to Jackie Robinson, I know that you're a good ball player. What I don't know is if you have guts. Hasn't he already proved it? Jackie shot back, Mr. Rickey, are you looking for a black man who is afraid to fight back? Rickey thundered back at him, Robinson, I'm looking for a ball player with guts enough not to fight back. And that was the moment that changed everything. 
Jackie Robinson went on to endure bigoted hatred from almost every direction. Pitchers would try to hit him with the ball. Catchers would spit on his shoes. He got death threats, hate mail, and racial slurs levied against him from all corners. And he learned that, that if he could endure, what would happen is the world would begin to see that they were the ones living in chaos as he remained calm and centered, enduring this hatred that was heaped upon him. Well, this morning, we're picking up our story with Jesus and the disciples right where we left off last week. And last week, we saw that everything seemed on the verge of failure. Jesus was bowed down with dread of taking on the weight of the sin of the entire world. And his disciples were arguing about who of them was the greatest. And despite his entreaties for them to wake up and pray, they failed to prepare themselves. And so this morning, we're going to look at the chaotic failure of everyone around Jesus to see him clearly to perceive who he is and what he is doing. And then we're going to look at the calm, centered control with which Jesus faces his own arrest. Luke tells us that a crowd approaches Jesus and his disciples in the garden, and the crowd is being led by Judas. Judas, one of the 12 closest people to Jesus on earth, There isn't much that we know about Judas. In fact, though the scriptural canon at least hints to us that he's not just one-dimensional, Luke doesn't really have much more to say about Judas and who he is. In fact, he doesn't want to give us a surprise ending. He introduced us to Judas way back in chapter 6 by saying, this is Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. In his play, The Dark Hours, Don Marquis wrote out some lines for the character Judas, and he has Judas say this about himself, that he is like a city full of spirits, and they riot in the streets. In Judas, we see a man whose deep self-loathing would be his undoing. His mind was so darkened that though he had seen Jesus perform miracle upon miracle, though he had heard Jesus pronounce the most diseased, unclean people clean, though he had watched Jesus embrace the absolute worst kind of people for whatever reason, the lies of Satan won out in his heart, and rather than turn to Jesus for healing and forgiveness, his heart devoured itself with fear and bitterness and disgust. And Judas failed to see Jesus clearly. Whether he had some other expectations for what Messiah should be like, we don't know. But so deeply did he reject Jesus' love that he just continued to drink in the poisonous waters of self-rejection and self-deception. Judas deceived himself into thinking that he was too unlovable or something, and he ended up deceiving himself into selling God into death by way of a kiss. He greets Jesus with a greeting of love and respect, the way a pupil should greet his rabbi. Jesus responds by being calm. He's focused, and he sees clearly exactly what Judas is doing, even as Judas comes in for the kiss. What a way to betray someone. Wouldn't you just stay home? Wouldn't you draw them a map and then be anywhere else but there? You would have to be absolutely desperate for love and yet completely unable to accept it to betray someone face-to-face with a kiss. I think one of the most powerful scenes in the movie Braveheart is when Robert the Bruce betrays William Wallace. On the battlefield, Wallace had concocted this secret plan that he thought was going to give him a quick victory, and he sees it just dissipating before his eyes. And he begins to realize that somehow his enemies learned the truth of his plans. And he spies this hooded man hanging back at the enemy's line, and Wallace runs down the hooded man, and after ripping off the mask and seeing that it's Robert, It's Robert. 
his betrayer. And the camera just goes back and forth as these two men stare at each other, and it is just absolutely heartbreaking. Betrayal is heartbreaking because you can't be betrayed by your enemies. You're only ever betrayed by your friends, by people that you love and that you thought loved you back. And though we see that for Jesus, this was obviously no surprise. He had predicted that Judas would do this. He had placed himself in that garden because he knew that Judas would come there looking for him. He knew that Judas would lead his captors there. And without Judas even saying a word, Jesus sums up his entire game. But just knowing that Judas would do this doesn't mean that it didn't hurt. As I said last week, Jesus isn't Superman. He's fully God and fully human, and Judas was one of the 12 closest people to him. Jesus had picked him out and bid him to come and follow. How many meals had they shared together over the years? How many long days of ministering to the poor together? only to be stabbed in the back while Judas smiles and opens his arms, Rabbi. As Judas lurches through the garden, unaware of the depth of his own self-deception, Jesus asks just one penetrating rhetorical question. Judas, are you seriously betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? The Son of Man, Judas, How many times have you heard Jesus refer to himself as the Son of Man? And you know, Judas, you know that it's written in the book of the prophet Daniel that he had a vision of one like a Son of Man coming down with the clouds of heaven who approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. And all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. You know that the Son of Man's dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed, and you're handing him over for a few pieces of silver? You're handing him over to death with a kiss? Judas does not see Jesus clearly. He fails to perceive who Jesus really is. The crowd that Judas is leaving is as blind as he is. And for a while now in Luke, he, he, he mentions the crowds over and over. And for most of Luke's gospel, the crowds are pretty good people. They respond fairly well to Jesus. They don't really understand what his mission is, but they haven't been outright antagonistic to him. But this time, the crowd is made up entirely of chief priests, elders, and members of the temple guard. And once again, It is the religious leaders, the ones who should have a keen insight about Messiah that fail to understand what God is up to. And Luke doesn't give us a surprise ending with these fellows either. He's told us a long time ago that they rejected God's purposes for themselves. And a few chapters after he said that, Jesus explains what he meant, that the chief priests and the elders are going to reject Jesus. They're going to reject God's Messiah and cause him to suffer and die. Throughout Luke's gospel, we have seen the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the chief priests, the elders, hounding Jesus at every turn. They watched him heal, and then they got angry that he did it on the Sabbath. They watched him eat and drink with people different than themselves, and they got bitter that this teacher who knew so much about God's law wasn't spending his time courting their affection, but rather spent time with whores and schemers and sinners. And when Jesus clamps down on them, for following the law to the letter, but neglecting justice and the love of God, when he calls them out for loving the best seats in church, for needing to be respected in the community, their opposition of him takes on a fierceness 
They clutch their money bags and they sneer at this sinner lover. What irony. Despite miracle after miracle done in their presence, these men harden their hearts against God. If we could go back and map out the entire book of Luke, we would see that he's having Jesus rewrite the story of Israel. Jesus is recapitulating Israel's story, and he's rewalking the Exodus with miracles leading people to freedom. But this time, it's not the Pharaoh of Egypt that hardens his heart. It's the guys who knew that story like the back of their hand. They literally had it written on the back of their hand, and they don't see it. But men who love power like this are not strong men. They're not courageous men. They're cowards. They've been trying to figure out a way to kill Jesus or have him arrested without the crowds turning against them. And so here they are, hearts in their throats, cloaking themselves in darkness, trying to hide their deeds. These cowards wait until Jesus is out of sight. And even then, they bring the temple bouncers, all muscle and weapons, to arrest him while they furtively glance around. And Jesus remains calm collected. He asks them a very simple question. And if you have a sense of humor, it's really a pretty funny question. And literally what he says in the text is, have you come out against a robber? Are you guys hunting criminals, dangerous, dangerous criminals? What's with the weapons? I'm not a revolutionary. Those guys have weird camps and weird facial hair up in the mountains where they stockpile weapons. I've been teaching in the temple daily. Why not just arrest me then? And with one question, Jesus unmasks their cowardice. He unmasks their fear, and he reveals that due to the chaos in their hearts, as they try to scramble to protect what they think is theirs, they have failed to see Jesus. They have come after him criminally as if he's the criminal. And they have failed to perceive him and his mission. And in the moment, the very moment that they think they are upholding true religion, at the height of their fervency for the name of Yahweh, they are so embedded into the powers of darkness that they don't even realize they are acting out nothing less than diabolical plans to kill the very God they think they're protecting. But it's their hour, after all, the hour when darkness reigns. As I said, Luke is not big on surprise endings. So if we had just been reading his gospel account together in one sitting this morning, we'd pretty much expect things to play out just like they are. Judas becomes a traitor. The religious establishment works themselves up into a murderous frenzy. But sandwiched right in between these two reactions are the disciples. It's important for us to remember that as Judas and religious leaders move in to arrest Jesus, It's while Jesus was still speaking to his disciples. If you were here last week, you know what he was saying to them. He was saying, why are you asleep? Wake up and pray that you will not fall into temptation. And in the chaos that surrounds them, as Judas moves in with that sickly sweet smile of betrayal, as the religious leaders with their beady eyes and their hired muscles start to encircle Jesus, the disciples suddenly, finally wake up and they see about what's going to happen. All of a sudden, it clicks. For weeks, Jesus has been saying, these people are going to reject me. I'm going to Jerusalem to die. I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and teachers of the law, and I'm going to suffer and die. And every time he says it, they're like, oh, I didn't pack my towel for the pool at the hotel. But now they get it. Or do they? 
They spring into action. Lord, they say, should we strike with our swords? And then without even waiting for an answer, one of the disciples, Luke doesn't tell us who it is, but we know, take a guess, it's Peter, strikes at the servant of the high priest, obviously trying to slice his neck, but bumbling fisherman that he is, he lands an indirect blow and severs the guy's ear instead. And what Jesus says in response has been translated here as no more of this, but literally what he's saying is, suffer ye thus far. A little more difficult to understand, right? What he could be saying, he could be saying, knock it off. He could be saying, let me do this much, or even let events take their course. And however we choose to interpret that kind of enigmatic phrase, it's very clear. The disciples have failed to see Jesus clearly. They have failed to perceive the situation. The darkness and chaos surrounding them drove them to zealous reaction, where they say, Lord, as if they'll wait for a command, but they don't really mean it. But Jesus remains calm. He's quiet and centered, and he touches the man's ear and heals him. Do you see that the people around Jesus thought they were doing the right thing? Do you see that the religious leaders thought they were stopping a blasphemer? Do you see that his disciples thought they were doing the right thing? Unlawful rest of the Messiah, you bet we'll fight to stop it. And what about us? Do we see Jesus clearly? Or do we allow our own self-loathing or our own self-deception to keep, a, keep Jesus at arm's length and never allow the power of his love to change us? Or are we like the religious leaders that reject Jesus outright? To be honest, we've tried to be really nice about this. We've been going through Luke for a year, and over and over again we talk about the religious leaders. You guys realize we're talking about ourselves, right? We look at these Pharisees and we think, man, those guys were the worst, but they weren't the worst. These are the exact kind of people you'd want in your church. They take Bible study seriously. They give money to the ministry. They care about taking a stand on doctrinal issues. They want their religious outlook to dictate their social values. That describes like 85% of the people in here, maybe more. But what do we do? We shift almost imperceptibly from morality is important to my moral record is important. We go from theology and doctrine are important to my theological position is important. The next thing you know, we're comparing ourselves to other people, asking who's in and who's out. And we compare ourselves to other churches and we say, oh, thank you, God, that we're not like them. And without even realizing it, we have placed ourselves in opposition to Jesus because we have failed to see him as he is, and we have failed to perceive him and his mission. But others of us are like the disciples, specifically Peter, we see what we think are enemies, and we run off at the mouth, and we jump into the thick of things, and we just assume that we know the right thing to do, and we're out doing battle for Jesus. But so often when we think we're fighting his enemies, we're really fighting our own. And the next thing you know, we find ourselves in opposition to Jesus. Why? Because we failed to see him. We failed to perceive him and his mission. Jesus didn't just die for his enemies. He died for your enemies and my enemies. So what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to be able to perceive what's going on in the world and what Jesus is up to? Well, it's the same answer as we saw last week. It's the answer that Jesus was trying to give to his sleepy disciples before they woke up and started singing swords around. And the answer 
is prayer. You see how chaotic everything around Jesus has become, and only moments ago he was in agony, wrestling in prayer, and now he is the calm, centered master of the situation. How? How does that happen? It happens by wrestling in prayer and taking on submission. Jesus is submitting himself for the will of the Father, and in the chaos and darkness of the world around him, he remains true to what God has called him to do. Friends, this is a brave new world, a world that does not understand Christianity and the Christian message, and it will not do any longer to simply assume that we know the right answers and the right steps to take because we haven't been called, the church has not been called to something that's difficult. The church has been called to something that is impossible. The church has been called to fill up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Well, what does that mean? I have no idea, but I can guarantee you it's not going to feel nice. And that's why Paul tells the Corinthians, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Why not rather suffer as Jesus suffered? Above all else, we have got to engage in prayer and through prayer, Submit ourselves to God's will, to what he wants to accomplish in our community here and in this city. You have a chance to do that this morning. You can go to the prayer corner in the back as we come to communion, and you can come and join us this Wednesday as we come and pray together as a church about what God is doing in our lives and what he wants to see happen in this world through us. Now, in a moment, we are going to confess our faith together, but as we come to this table, I want to just say, one final thing about our text from Luke, and that is look at the gentle mercy of Jesus. Look at what he does in the midst of darkness and chaos and the greatest trial of his life. He heals the wound of his enemy. He heals the wound of the man coming to arrest him. Even to the very end, the ministry of Jesus never wobbles. He comes to bring healing and life to people that don't understand him, to people that hate him, to people like me and you. If you've never been united to him or to his church through faith and baptism, then I want you to know, without a doubt, Jesus absolutely loves you. He loves you enough to give his life for you. So come, talk to me, talk to one of the leaders here about how you can come to this table soon and taste of his love. If you are a follower of Jesus this morning, even if you have been puffed up with your own moral efforts, your own religious understanding, even if you have been off hunting dragons in the name of God without bothering to ask him what his will actually is, know that Jesus longs to reconcile you to himself. He has already given you his moral record of righteousness, and now you are fully accepted. So come to this table and taste of his love for you. Let me pray for our meal, and then we'll confess our faith and come to communion. Jesus, it is um, it's overwhelming to see in detail the, the lengths that you would go to show your love for us. And as we come to this table, as we rip apart bread, 
May we just be overwhelmed and infused with your love. May it drip out of our hearts and may we leave this place smelling like you, smelling like people who have been loved so deeply that others around us would wonder, would begin to question and would begin to walk toward you in faith. Jesus, would you feed us this morning on yourself? We ask it in your name. Amen.